Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 6th in California. It is... Um, it is 10 in the morning, it's 6 in the afternoon or early evening in the United Kingdom in London. It's a bank holiday here, it's Labor, Labor Day, although I don't think Americans use the term bank holiday, perhaps they don't have banks here anymore. Uh, they still have banks in England, and uh, today's conversation is about the United Kingdom, its history over the last 50 years. Uh, looking at the headlines today about the UK, there's a lot of deja vu, a lot of stuff that seems to have appeared time and time again. Uh, as many of you know, I came to California about 40 or 50 years ago, so uh, from the United Kingdom. But when I look at the headlines from the UK, it seems as if these could have been headlines from the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, is accusing Boris Johnson, the head of the, the, the Prime Minister and the head of the British Conservative Party, that Britain was incapable of international leadership over Afghanistan. We could have changed that headline many times over the last 40 years. Britain seems to have struggled in many ways over all forms of international leadership. Um, Brexit, of course, remains in the headlines. Simon Jenkins in The Guardian, one of the UK's most um, thorough critics of, of Johnson, uh, suggests that uh, today in the UK, uh, Boris Johnson's lies about Europe are finally uh, coming home to roost. Polly Toynbee, who sometimes it seems as if has been writing the same column for about 40 or 50 years, is, is claiming that the Tories' social care policy won't work. Meanwhile, one of my favorite um, columnists, British uh, political columnists, uh, Philip Stevens, who uh, I think is the head political commentator at the Financial Times, has described Britain's Kabul retreat as leaving the UK on a bridge to nowhere. Um, uh, Stevens has also been very critical about uh, Johnson's approach to Brexit, suggesting that one of his uh, offers, Boris Johnson's offers, uh, has resulted in, a, in, a, in an offer that the EU can only refuse. Uh, and uh, Philip Stevens has also been excellent, I think, on writing about the, the sour taste um, in the minds or the mouths of leavers, even though they got what they wanted. So I'm thrilled that Philip Stevens, actually, alongside being a columnist, is also a book writer. And he has a new book out, a very, very relevant book today, uh, Britain Alone, The Path from Suez to Brexit. It came out earlier in the UK this year, and it's out today in the United States. And I'm thrilled that Philip Stevens is uh, talking to us from his Financial Times office, just north of the Thames in London. Philip, how are things in London? Has anything changed in the last 40 years since I left? I don't think it has. I mean, thank you so much for inviting me. And I think when you talked then about, you know, our struggle to, for leadership in the last 40 years or so, it you know, we've come full circle. And I think one of the big reasons has been 
we haven't still now worked out for ourselves where we sit in the world. And, you know, famously, the American uh, statesman Dean Acheson uh, remarked back in the early 1960s about, you know, Britain losing an empire and failing to find a role. And, you know, 60 years on, post-Brexit, post, as we saw, post-Afghanistan this week, we are rudderless. We are on a bridge to nowhere. We were, I think, for a period, we found a, some sort of balance between Europe and, and the United States, very strong relationship with the United States, particularly on security, but also, you know, a, a player in Europe. And this was Tony Blair, I think, once referred to us as, you know, Britain as a bridge between Europe and the United States. Well, with Brexit, we blew up that European pillar. And we've seen with Joe Biden and the withdrawal from Afghanistan that the United States is stepping back from its end of the bridge. So hence the bridge to nowhere. We're sitting somewhere mid-Atlantic all on our own. Yes, this uh, bridge to nowhere um, is, is uh, I guess it's painful. I remember um, Bill Clinton and, and Tony Blair, they always used to talk about bridges. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily the best uh, of, of, of metaphors. Um, Philip, you talk about Britain being rudderless. I'm talking to you from California. It appears, to me at least, that the United States is also rudderless and under a particularly rudderless president, Joe Biden, perhaps defined by his absence of rudder. Um, are there models in the history of the United Kingdom or of America or in Europe of uh, countries that have um, have directed their rudders successfully, which Britain might look to as a model? Well, of course, you know, Europe is full of nations which once um, ran empires and have adjusted to a, you know, a rather smaller but still significant role in the world. It's not easy. Um, but well, I mean, I, give me an example. I mean, a French model or the Belgians. Well, I mean, they had a big empire. Sweden, Sweden ran a big empire at one point, <laughs> and that's yeah, and you know, a few it, hundreds of years ago. But they adjusted the Spanish. Well, we always and, fall back on Sweden and Denmark, Philip, and no Spain? one can be the Swedes except for the Swedes. The Sp Spain, Portugal, <laughs> um, and well, the, the history of Spain is not exactly. I think something to be I proud of over the last hundred years. I think the most successful has been France. And in a strange way, France is uh, is closest to Britain in its aspirations. I mean, both of these countries want to be global players. Um, Boris Johnson has this phrase now, global Britain. But he, here's the real problem. And I start my book with a quote from a British official in 1948, and this guy, Henry Tizard, and he summed up the problem. He said, look, Britain is no longer a great power. It remains a great nation. But as long as we pretend we're still a great power, we risk losing being a great nation. And that has been, that's the thread running through the last 40, 50, 60 years. It's been that our aspirations, our sense of our role in the world 
has always run ahead of our economic and military capabilities. So when Boris Johnson talks about global Britain, he's trying to reimagine this sort of Elizabethan world where we, you know, we strike out across across the globe, but we don't have the resources. I mean, look at that. We've got a new aircraft carrier. It's just gone off, sailed off, and it's going to be very soon. It's going to be sailing through the South China Sea. But we can't afford enough F-35s to sit on it. So the Queen Elizabeth is going to be carrying eight British Marine planes and 10 American Marine F-35s. So, you know, this to, if we're going to be successful, we've got to adjust our aspirations to what we can do. And I think France has done that by saying, look, you know, we're no longer a great power, but we are a global, you know, we do have global interests and we're going to leverage our power within the European Union. And that's what uh, we I, uh, Philip, I don't want to turn this because it, it's a fascinating conversation, actually, this comparison between the UK and France. But someone could argue, I, I don't think I know enough about France to argue this, that France is 10, five or 10 years behind the UK when it comes to the EU and that Marine Le Pen will eventually once inevitably she comes to power, she'll lead the French out, which will end the, the whole EU enterprise. But let's not go there. I want to come back to that quote that you begin the book with about Britain not being a great power, but being um, a, great a great country. Nation. What does that mean, a great nation? I mean, why is it greater than any other nation? Why is it greater than, or why should it be greater than Portugal or Italy or Sweden or Poland? I wouldn't say it's greater. I, though, although I'm, you know, fairly pessimistic in the book because of the way policymakers have behaved, I would say it's a, it's a great nation. Look, we have still pretty big economy. I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh in the world. I think we have a cultural, historical heritage that is worth something. I think we have resources in our universities. I saw the other day that Oxford University, um, my alma mater, um, came top of a world ranking for the fourth or fifth year in a row the other day. So we have great resources and cultural resources, soft power, as it were. We have the BBC. Some people don't like it. A lot of people in the, around the world envy it. So we have, we can make, I think, we have a very good diplomatic service, uh, good spies, actually. Um, well, certainly good, uh, good spy literature. Uh, uh, Philip, your book is about decline. I, I think British nationalists, yeah. if there's such a thing, would find it rather depressing reading. But this history between Suez in 56 and Brexit um, a few years ago, is also full of, of glory. I mean, in cultural terms, the Beatles exported popular music around the world. Today, I think the Premier League is, is perhaps uh, Britain's strongest export and uh, dominates, seems to increasingly dominate the sporting landscape here in the United States. Does it really matter that Britain has experienced such self-evident political decline where its cultural capital remains very high? It doesn't matter as long as we don't pretend to be something that we're not. And the problem is we've had political leaders, not just this government, governments before, who have pretended that we can do things and exercise power and influence 
which is beyond us. And you know, the truth is, you know, in military terms, we can't do anything without the United States. We have an independent, supposedly, nuclear deterrent for which we are dependent on the United States to supply and to service the missiles. Now, I don't feel uncomfortable with that. But, you know, I think to be a great nation, you actually have to be realistic about what you can do. And I agree with you. You know, we have, as I say, we have all these influences, but not let's not pretend to be up there with the superpowers. Let's just find, you know. There's only two superpowers at most, uh, Philip, and, and, and one of them is in radical decline. So... I'm not sure that. But anyway, let's go back to your history. It's a wonderful book. You begin not with the end of the Second World War, but with with the Suez Crisis. Why don't you begin in 1945? Because to me, at least, that seems to be the beginning of British decline. But so why begin with Suez? Because I think um, Suez and uh, the Brexit vote in 2016, 60 years on, a sort of neat, emblematic bookends. Suez was the moment when the British ruling class was forced to admit that we no longer had an empire and therefore we couldn't operate militarily um, independently of the United States on big issues. And, you know, what happened, it was an Anglo-French expedition, but what happened after after the invasion of Suez was that the United States turned around to Britain Eisenhower basically said, we're cutting off all your lines of international finance. We're not going to help you get oil to replace the oil that's no longer coming through the Suez Canal. And we gave up. We said, "Okay, we put our hands up. We can't do it. And we agreed with the United States that, you know, we would withdraw and the United Nations would take over. So that was a seminal moment. It was the moment when empire you know, really ended, as it were. Um, we had then a period where, first of all, we said, right, what are we going to do? We're going to be, and we decided we'll just be best friends with the United States. We'll, to use this phrase that um, Harold Macmillan used, we're going to be Greece to America's Rome. We're going to be the, the advisors for the United States. But then we saw that, hey, Germany and France and Italy and the Benelux countries were doing pretty well with their common market. So we thought, look, we can't, you know, geography, economics means we can't just forget our own continent. So begrudgingly, after a lot of negotiation, being turned down twice by the French, we joined the EU. And I think that's the moment for a while we found that point of balance. You're right about bridge not being a good metaphor. But we found a balance where we had influence in Europe and influence in Washington, and we could leverage one against one. Is there a particular event that captures this? I I can't think of one. I'm sure you mentioned some in the book. Um, Sort of the opposite, essentially, of Suez, where Britain and France got screwed by the Americans in a in a profound historical miscommunication, which shifted, which I guess revealed the the profound change in the in the balance of power between Europe and the United States. But were there examples in these early years when Britain joined the EU where they successfully were, to, to use your metaphor, the bridge between Europe and the United States? 
Was it yeah, Vietnam? Think, um, well, no, we said no to Vietnam and we hadn't joined the EU then. And Harold Wilson, the then prime minister, said no to, to LG, LBJ on several occasions. I mean, rightly so, in my view. But um, but if you look after we joined the European Union, if you look at the arguments in Europe in the late 70s, early 80s about nuclear missiles and whether we should have short range nuclear missiles, very, very difficult moments um, towards the end of the Cold War. Britain did actually play the role, I think, of uh, an uh, uh, arbitration role, a role of being on the side of the US in terms of deployment of these missiles, but also persuading uh, European colleagues and, and stiffening some European colleagues. So, so yeah, I do think, I don't think you can, you can't find an explosive event like, uh, like Suez, but you can fi find a series of you know, episodes and incidents in our history where the fact that we you know, had a voice in Washington and a voice in Brussels made it much easier to push policies which we saw it as being in our national interest. One of the most divisive, or, or certainly not one of the, the most divisive figure in this, your history between Suez and Brexit in the United Kingdom is, of course, Margaret Thatcher. But my reading of your book seems to suggest that you think that Thatcher could have been, again, she, she missed the opportunity to innovate on the, 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 the international stage where she did, of course, innovate in a very controversial way when it came to domestic politics and reforming uh, British capitalism and, and British labor relations. How does Thatcher fit into your narrative? Well, when she came into office in 1979 on the back of a very, very big election victory, there was a chance that the EU had been shaped by France and Germany, but there was a chance, the common market as it was then called, or the European community, there was a chance to reshape it and to reshape it in a way that basically France, Britain and Germany called the shots you could you know think of it as a, a troika or trilateral um and that we would have had more influence and there was you know what's called the franco-german axis which has driven a lot of eu policy would have been expanded to include us and she chose not to do that there was a fight to be had you know about our she wasn't, would it be fair to say about margaret thatcher that when she came when she first came to power margaret thatcher really wasn't Thatcher yet. She only became she Thatcher, Thatcher later. Yet. She wasn't Thatcher yet. She was very pro-European. There'd been a referendum in 75 about whether we should stay in. She had been forceful in saying yes. And she talked about the EU in geopolitical terms about, you know, this is an institution which allows us, and I think the phrase she used, which allows us to open doors in the world that otherwise would be closing to us with the end of empire. But having got into office, she, one, had this battle that had to be fought with the EU, but she allowed it to, to obscure everything else about our budget contributions. And then once what Ronald Reagan got elected, she saw an opportunity there to share, if you like, the limelight. And you know, the problem for British prime ministers is that you know, it's always 
much more, um, I suppose, uh, it's much more telegenic to be, you know, folk, yeah, at the White House to be sort of in the, you know, sharing the the the, the limelight with a U.S. president than it is to be seen going into one of those sort of rather dual buildings in Brussels where ministers meet, you know, every month or two um, to decide European affairs. So she was beguiled by Ronald Reagan, built a very strong... And he was beguiled by her. I mean, he, he, yeah. he grew his backbone, didn't he, after she told him to? Yep, he did. But it was that relationship that actually showed you, if you like, you could call it a precursor to what's happened in Afghanistan this year. It was that relationship that showed you that while we in Britain have always been rather sentimental about what you know Churchill called the special relationship, we've always talked about it as being about kith and kin and culture. The United States has always been really hard-headed. Of course, Britain is a good ally, but the United States has always operated through its national interests. So when Ronald Reagan wanted to uh, invade Grenada, member of the Commonwealth, Queen Head of State, he didn't consult with Margaret Thatcher. He just went ahead, called it as the invasion was starting, and did it. When Margaret Thatcher said, I'm going to fight uh, the Argentine, Argentina, to, to win back the Falklands, actually, it was the French who first offered help. And for a long time, Ronald Reagan was pulled towards not offending um, America's yeah, allies in Central and, um, and uh, South America. So, so the US has always been hard headed. Um, yes, I'm sure that Britain is appreciated as an ally, but it's never going to get in the way of uh, America um, acting first in its own interests. Well, we have to have this conversation, Philip, without mentioning Winston Churchill. Of course, I just did, but let's avoid him. Uh, Thatcher, I mean, just as Churchill's shadow lies over the history of the United Kingdom, perhaps less than I think many Americans think, Thatcher's shadow, of course, dominates everything in, in post-Thatcherite the UK. Even Tony Blair and other the major figures in your book who actually today was very critical of, of, of Johnson's failure in Afghanistan, you seem to suggest that just as Thatcher missed the trick in terms of figuring, of, of, of establishing a rudder for a, uh, a post-great power, the UK. Uh, Blair did the same, and he fell into the same trap of, of supporting the US, of becoming its lapdog, and then uh, essentially destroying the rudder of, of, of figuring out what Britain needs to be when it grows up in the 21st century. How yeah, critical are you of uh, Blair himself? I think in some ways I'm sort of more critical of Blair in that his opportunity was even greater. He again came into power this time in 97 after a huge general election victory. The conservative opposition had been basically smashed. Everyone knew he wasn't going to govern just for one term, but at least two. He was a pro-European and he could have like Thatcher, have built a position, a leadership position uh, in Europe um, for Britain, which would make it rather easier for, for Britons, for voters, to reconcile themselves with membership of the EU. Instead, once George Bush came into office and once we had uh, the terrorist attacks on America 
in September 2001, Blair lost his anchor, I think, and said, whatever Bush wants to do, I've got to support it. And I, I knew Blair very well because um, uh, I'd been reporting as political editor of the FT while he was during his rise and I kept known. And he once said to me, you know, it's my duty to be on the side of the United States president. Now, that was a mistake. It was his duty to support the United States in the fight against terrorism. It wasn't his duty to do whatever a particular US president wanted to do. So Iraq basically destroyed Tony Blair, who otherwise I think would have been one of the, you know, the, the most uh, substantive prime ministers we'd had for a very long time. I mean, the two people, the two right. people who stand out in this story from 56 Thatcher and Blair. Thatcher and Blair. Uh, yeah, as as everybody knows, Philip, it's impossible to talk about society or politics in the United States without mentioning race. And the equivalent of race, I think, in the UK is class. Um, you know, the headline today is about uh, what I consider at least the idiotic royal family's connection with Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew, Prince Harry. It's become even more of a soap opera than it's ever been. Um, and the upper-class twit who came to power uh, as conservative leader, David Cameron, was the one who made the fatal blunders when it comes to Brexit. Is the problem with not having a rudder, is the problem is that Britain has never done away, can't escape this prison of class, our obsession with Eton and the royal family and Oxford and Cambridge and all this nonsense? Well, I'm not sure we can't escape it, but it certainly obscures many of the realities. And we started this conversation with me saying, you know, Britain with all its strengths has to face up to realities. And David Cameron was never really, you know, David Cameron was one of these, you know, old Etonian um, chaps who thought, well, one, you know, he, you know, he was entitled. He was prime minister because you know he should have been prime minister. That he could have been. He, he could have been. He could have walked out of an Evelyn War novel, couldn't he? And yeah. I mean, these were written at the beginning of the twentieth century. Um, yeah, and he didn't think he had to. Once he got the job, he didn't think then that he had to be anything than than look good as a prime minister. You know, <laughs> to look the part, and he was good at that. He did look like a prime minister, and you know, he gave good speeches, but. One of his officials, and I, you know, I mentioned this in the book, that once said to me early on, I was quizzing one of his officials about the prime minister, and I said, "Well, you know, when he was quite new, and we hadn't really seen seen his his develop his views." And I said, "What does he think about the world?" And this official looked at me, and it was like a scene out of this BBC comedy. Yes, minister. The official looked at me and said, "Well, I'm afraid our prime minister." thinks the world is somewhere where you go on holiday. <laughs> uh, what he was saying is he just doesn't think about the world. He goes off to these summits and they Is chat. that because, yeah, he went to Eton and Oxford and these people just live in, in some absurd fantasy world where they think they're the centre of the universe and that they still have empire? Well, it's, it's partly that, but it's also, you know, well, you know, if a problem comes up, you know, in this phrase, so they'll, we'll wing it. 
you know, we'll sort it out. You know, we'll sort it out when we have to because we're clever chaps, and you know, there'll be there'll always, you know, I will always find a way out. And well, that's so, a very much, uh, but that's that that captures Boris as well. What about the royal family, Philip? You've you've carefully sidestepped that one. I mean, uh, is there something? I, completely absurd about them when most americans think of the uk they think of the royal family or a fantasy royal family that they see on the soap opera on television well i hope they think about the queen i mean i'm one of these you know, <laughs> who will live forever won't she she seems to have lived almost forever by now yeah personally i'm one of these people who is a republican it's i find the whole institution sort of bizarre and weird except I really like having the queen as our monarch. And so, you know, she has, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, she's, she is a unit, you know, forget the family, forget Harry, forget Andrew. It, it is fair to say that the queen remains in a very turbulent world and in a turbulent period in British history, a unifying figure and, and someone that if you're, Scots and you're Welsh or, or you're English or you're Northern Irish, we can look up to because we haven't, you know, we may be on the cusp of right. the breakup of the United Kingdom. Yeah, and, and I wanted to briefly come to that. Uh, headlines today about Scottish power sharing, BBC headlines about the Northern Irish protocol. Um, is the United Kingdom as this uh, state uh, incorporating England Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, is it in crisis and could its breakup actually result in figuring out the rudder that you say has been missing since Suez? Well, I think, you know, it's, I think that the sensible thing to say now it is, is that it is entirely plausible, that's more than possible, but not probable, you know, I, I'm being careful in that word, that Scotland in the next five or 10 years will vote for independence and leave the United Kingdom. Equally, it's entirely plausible that there will be a referendum, what's called a borders poll in both parts of Ireland. I will put a slightly longer perspective on that, you know, 10, 15 years in which Ireland reunifies. So things that were you know, we had a Scottish referendum on independence in 2014. The Scots voted to stay in the union and that that seemed to close the issue, at least for a generation. Because of Brexit and the Scots voting to stay in Europe while England voted to go out, it's reopened the divide. So, and the Scottish nationalists are doing extremely well. They've won another election. They having campaigned for another referendum. So Scotland before had a choice in, in 2014, it could say, well, we want to remain part of the British Union, but that keeps us in the EU Union. Now Scotland has to choose. Does it want to be part of the British Union or the European Union? And it seems to me there's a fair chance that a majority will go for the European Union. So yes, um, the UK could break up. And then England, I think you're right, would be forced 
to come to terms with the fact which that might not be a bad thing philip let's it's a wonderful conversation and your book britain alone is 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 an excellent history i think someone described it as an instant classic i found it fascinating let's end on a positive note it's always easy to bash the brits they that's what that's sort of like a national pastime um but but let's think of some ways in which England or Britain or the United Kingdom could innovate in a post-Brexit world. You had a an interesting column recently about squandering no uh, trust is no route to what you call a global Britain, which has become a, a catch phase. Uh, you you also had an interesting column about the state taking control in Johnson's post-Brexit Britain, so sort of going back before Thatcher. And you have something, uh, another interesting piece about the German threat to the UK is indifferent. So let's end on a couple of questions. Firstly, how can Britain innovate politically in this world? And how can they reestablish the key relationship in Europe, which is with Germany, not with France? Well, I think first step, you know, is it's about rhetoric, not talking about ourselves as if we're superior. Second step is deploying our strengths. And I talked earlier about our diplomatic strengths. We're very good at problem solving. You know, our diplomats are very practiced at going into a room when there's a problem to be solved and saying, well, why don't we try it this way? And acting not as a bridge between two, but as a sort of mediator and, and a convener among many. I think until the government cut, cut, cut it, you know, we'd become a world leader in development aid, which had, you know, and we should rebuild that. You know, we can, you know, influence and um, power abroad is not just about fighting wars. It's about shaping opinion. So we can do all of those things, um, but we have to do it with a certain amount of humility. And we actually have to look carefully to to rebuild, we're not going to rejoin the EU. I didn't want us to leave, but I, you know, I don't think we're going to go back anytime soon. But we can, as you say, rebuild individual relationships with Germany, but also with France, where we've got to, we're going to have to do more on defence with France. I mean, that's one of the lessons of Afghanistan that, you know, Europe has to develop a capability to do things on its own, if and when the United States says it doesn't want to be involved. And the two countries that you know have the, the the wherewithal to do that are Britain and France, and to pull Germany into that. So there are, you know, with good leadership, a little bit of humility. Uh, we have good, very strong techn- technological skills as well in certain industries, pharmaceutical in- industry, in fintech. Some- uh, the, the the FT is excellent on the reinvention of the. The banking industry with tech, and, and certainly yeah. London's a leader in that area, in some ways competing with Silicon Valley. Well, Philip uh, Stevens, uh, such a wise man, Britain alone, the path from Suez to Brexit, very wise book, very fair, balanced book, avoiding the hyperbole both on the left and the right. Congratulations on the book. It's just out today in the UK, in the US, out in the, already in the UK. Philip, in addition to to your new book, Britain Alone, I know you're in the FT offices just north of the Thames. What else should people be reading in these strange times where I think just as in the US and in the UK, we're not still quite sure in the age of COVID whether we should be going out. Probably better to stay at home and read some books like yours. And, And what else should people be reading? 
Well, I think anyone who's interested, as I am, in contemporary or modern, you know, very modern history should read a book by a former colleague of mine, a chap called Satnam Sanghera. He's written a book called Empire Land, which looks at British history from the perspective of the empire, the colonies, rather than the perspective of London and the British ruling class. And for people like me, who, you know, brought up, taught history at university, who've studied the history of Britain through the prism of, you know, what we did to read a version of history or a perspective on history from the point of view of the people that we, of the countries we colonized is well worth it. So Empire Land by Satnam Sanghera. Can you introduce me to him? I'd love to get him on the show. Yeah, he's, he works for the Times newspaper. Um, I can happily, I'll happily uh, send you his uh, email. It, his book has made a, you know, made a big impact. Yeah, we, we, um, uh, we, we've had a number of shows about Empire and some of the writers from the UK. So it'd be great to have him. I, I've always wanted to get him on the show. Well, Philip Stevens, an honor. Keep writing your wonderfully wise and, and, and erudite columns for the FT. Congratulations on the new book. Keep well, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me.